Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Everything Went Black podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, leaving reviews, and sharing the episodes. I really appreciate that. Before we get going, I want to take care of some business. Shout out to all the Patreon supporters. Once again, I really appreciate it. Your continued support helps out quite a bit. For those of you who are interested in supporting the podcast on a monthly basis, monetarily, head over to Patreon. If you go to everythingwentblackmedia.com, there'll be a pop-up. There's a, a portal which will take you over to Patreon. And for as little as $1 a month, you can help support the podcast, allow me to do more stuff, help pay for the bandwidth, all that sort of stuff. And um, you know, in exchange, you get some free stuff which right now I'm working on more stuff. In the past, I've given away audiobooks, uh, rare tombs, demos, you know, stuff like that. And there'll be more things to come. I'm just trying to find time to make some of this content. If you like metal, which some of you I assume do, check out my show on Gimme Radio. It's called The Sacred and Profane. GimmeRadio.com. It's an all-metal, 24-7 station. It's got Dave Mustaine, Randy Blythe, a bunch of different you know guys doing um, their own shows. It's a curated format, and um, every two weeks they air my show. It'll be basically a playlist, the greatest hits of that week for me: old stuff, new stuff, death metal, black metal, hard rock, post-punk, hardcore, hardcore punk, all kinds of stuff. Pretty much whatever I think is cool. Strikes me as uh, something that's worth putting in a playlist. And there you go. It's it's uh, available for free. So I believe that you can go to gimmeradio.com, stream it through your computer, or you can download the app, which is available on the App Store. This podcast is available on pretty much all platforms. You can subscribe via iTunes. You can stream it at everythingwentblackmedia.com. Um, it's on Spotify. Google Play, <clears throat> Mixcloud, pretty much anywhere anywhere where you can listen to podcasts. Check us out on all social media accounts, Instagram, everything went black, underscore Mike Hill, Facebook and Twitter, everything went black, or you can check me out as Michael Hill on Facebook. Welcome back, my good friend, Alish Martinez, music PR specialist, DJ and artist. He'll be joining us for this episode, and we talk about a plethora of topics, including Pride Month, definitions of masculinity, the Misfits reunion, a couple of Danzig stories, gay biker clubs, and his upcoming DJ night in New York City. So check it out. So you, um, you've been working for years in the PR industry. Um, and right now you're working just on your, you have your own sort of operation going on right now, right? Yeah. yeah. So I have, I guess in 2002, I, you know, just started doing PR and my, the first band I worked for was The Cramps. And, um, you know, from then on kind of like prove yourself at the firm I was working at and it went well. And then I've worked with a lot of people over the years. And about five years ago, I, I kind of set up shop for myself to have, more control over a workload but also kind of like a vision of 
really focusing on like fringe artists, like left field artists, uh, championing a lot of different queer artists too, which is the great part of it. But as you can imagine, it's always hard to run your your own thing when you're championing those kind of yeah. ideas. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely like an, an admirable thing to do what you want to do, but you got to pay them bills, man. You know? Of course. Like, I know that You got to keep the lights on. You got to keep the lights on. But, uh, you know, this is uh, Pride Month. And yes. um, since Everything Went Black podcast is for all walks of life, we're going to celebrate Pride by having my friend Alayshan, who is a gay yeah. man. Thank you so much, Mike. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing your platform with me. And, you know, I always tell people uh, diversity doesn't happen by accident. You have to make it happen and share what you have. So I appreciate it. So one of the things that um, has been... Uh, you know, in the, in the back of my mind, you know, now that we're in Pride Month, is just the sort of corporate. Uh, I think there's a term for it too. Uh, you know, sort of exploitation of uh, the gay community to turn it into this sort of revenue stream for them with ads and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, what's the? There's a term for that, I think. You know, I don't know what, what the term would be, but I always say everyone's chasing that pink dollar. You oh, know, yeah. it's, okay. it's not as much of a, a risky proposition to support queer people as it was years ago. So, you know, very few companies experience a backlash for, for supporting queer people. It's usually the opposite. And everyone's uh, become aware that uh, they're professional now, have money. Right. And it's, you know, queer people are more marginalized it was harder to have a job and, and that stream of income. So, you know, it's like when people first identify the teenager as a market, I feel like it's, it's that everyone wants, wants that pink dollar. So, I mean, how, how is that like, you know, generally viewed in the, in the community? Well, I think that, you know, there's a, just, a, just like a kaleidoscope of opinions on it. Personally, um, someone from the more fringe aspects of it or someone who just comes from a, like a punk and DIY background, it's always uh, seemed disingenuous to me. Uh, I remember, you know, when 20 years ago, when you first started seeing like Pride Water, things branded with a pink triangle and official sponsors. And uh, so many of these people don't put any real resources into, you know, organizations that house homeless trans youth that advocate for the rights of gay people in, in the, so many parts of the world where it's still illegal or the states where you can, you know, still lose an apartment over it. So I think more and more people are starting to look at, do, do you have a real commitment to queer people or is this something where you're just trying to sell us a product? But they'll always, at the end of the day, if someone makes something that's desirable, a shirt that someone wants to wear, they're not gonna think too much about where that money's going, but. Yeah, that's, that's something that I've wrestled with too. I mean, I mean not, not specifically with the gay community, because I mean, you know, I, I, I can empathize with that. Um, but over the years growing up, listening to punk and hardcore music and sort of skate, not that I'm a skateboarder, but being involved in that culture um, through music and the scene or whatever, how, you know, that sort of, everything ends up getting co-opted. Anything that's like kind of cool and like on the outside, you know, um, you know, people may want to sort of vicariously express themselves by wearing a certain tag or ornament that they can just put on and say, okay, check me out, you know thrasher or like have the black flag bars or you know i support you know whatever i mean and that's always been like like i said i agree with you about about the appearance of it being disingenuous 
Um, do you think it's damaging at all, though? Like, is there any real, like, you see it as, like, a, a threat at, at, at some point? Um, okay, so for society at large, I don't see it as a threat because I think it's positive. I think it's good for children, for these things to be normalized um, in a certain way. And I, it definitely sends the message that um, gay people aren't, I guess, risky and are just res respectable in a certain way. But then there's also the part of me, it's like, I don't want to be respectable. I don't need respectable to you. I've spent my whole life being disrespected for who I am. And I've never, I've never needed your respect. I've had to make my life so I'm happy without your respect or anything to do with you. So I do think it does threaten um, that kind of a queer culture, the, the feral queer culture, the one that had to grow on the margins. You know, it's almost like, a, gentrification where just this seed is planted and then the neighborhood starts changing. So I, I, I feel that effect, but some people are all for it. I'm really against it. With all this corporate sponsorship going on, all this media being put out, there's, there's some key players such as Marsha, Marsha Johnson that are not being talked about in this conversation. So, you know, yeah, no, of course. And, and I mean, you know, queer history, like, like a lot of history, it's, the version of it depends on who's telling it. And um, unfortunately, I feel like gay white men, when a queer person's telling it at all, it's normally gay white men who have their own version of events. But, you know, I think it's any scholar, people, you know, respectable historians of queer history know that uh, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were, you know, two of the trans women of color that resisted the police and initiated what became, you know, the Stonewall riots. And um, it's the most marginalized people often make the biggest contributions to any culture and get erased from it, you know, musically speaking or that. And, and that's certainly their story, but uh, that, you know, people think that um, a bunch of uh, white gay men as we understand them today started that, but really that was a mafia bar and a mafia hangout and the most marginalized of people hung out there because there were even gay bars they couldn't go to. And when you have nothing to lose, I guess some people find that courage and it certainly sparked that around the world. And I'm just happy that you hear the name Marsha P. Johnson more and more. So I, I think we're gonna, gay history being respected or recorded in any formal ways is a really new thing. So I really think that um, that's something that's gonna change in the future. Now, one of the things, you know, we live in a very troubled time right now. We have uh, Donald Trump in office. Um, it seems like on a daily basis, on a daily basis, he's offending people. He's, you know, his rhetoric is offensive to most sensible people out there. Um, now, yeah, this is a, once again, this might come off as like a, a, a broad statement, but, you know, is there, is there like, um, politically, you know, cause he's been accused of being homophobic and all this other stuff. Is there any div division among the community, like with the gay community? Well, sadly, yeah, there is. There's certainly not a consensus, even when it comes to someone as horrifying as him. There are plenty of gay Republicans and just gay supporters of him because I really think that, um, you know, if you're someone from the upper middle class or wealthy family and you're white, and you're an educated person, which there's no reason you wouldn't be if you had those resources, that um, simply being gay is really not that marginalized of an identity and that those people have it pretty good. They have pretty good prospects of it. So they're not 
they're not gay white men that are professional and from good families are not in danger under Donald Trump the way that a trans person of color is an illegal immigrant is any working poor person is. So there have been even um, almost like Ann Coulter type figures in the gay community that have made careers out of being pro-Trump and gay at the same time and sensationalizing that point of view. But I would think overwhelmingly, you know, most queer people, the overwhelming majority of queer people is completely against uh, Donald Trump and certainly against Mike Pence, who's even more homophobic. So what what do you think the reason why this sort of like neoconservative upswing in our society, like just in your opinion? Uh, My opinion is that we have access to each other's voices more than ever. So you can kind of listen in on conversations that used to be private. So if, you know, uh, queer people were talking amongst each other, you didn't know what they spoke like or what they talked about. And now because of Twitter and Facebook, you can read those conversations. And the same for people of color and queer people of color. And since people have found a platform and amplified their voices uh, and kind of claimed space and made things happen for themselves, uh, I think there's a perception that straight white people aren't progressing and everybody else is, that it's, it's really hard to accept the fact that people are still trying really hard to get to where you've been just by birth. So I think that that's really it, that people feel their power being threatened, that everyone's getting one over on them, and this is their way of conserving it. Yeah, recently, um, if listeners of the podcast will know, I've been talking about this, but the uh, I shot a pilot, and uh, one of the guys I interviewed is this guy, Vegas Tenold, and he wrote a book called Everything You Love Will Burn, and he embedded himself in the uh, the sort of white nationalist movement and sort of dealt with some of this stuff, too, about, like, why, you know. I mean, living, living in the East Coast, it, it's like the smallest step to, to jump up to, to, you know, getting over someone's background, you know, culturally or whatever their orientation are, you know. And um, so, so for, com- you know, li- living in like a metropolitan area like this, it's like I've always been like, well, what the hell? Like, why would anyone have these ideas, you know? Besides from all the unresolved racial issues that people have. But, but I think that there is this like false sense that people from, from these t- typically, you know, interior par- portions of the country are being forgotten and sort of left out. And that's, you know, kind of like, the backlash to a lot of that stuff. Oh, yeah. My, my, uh, my, my longtime boyfriend um, is from Oklahoma, and his family's in Oklahoma and Arkansas and Missouri. So I spent a lot of time there the last eight years and speaking to people and really trying to be, uh, I guess, almost too Pollyanna about it of like, you know, let me share my truth with you <laughs> and, yeah. and talk to people about things and open up. And it's as much as it's been eye-opening for me and those parts of the country were different from what I envisioned, it's really showed me that um, we're very disconnected from each other as Americans and that people in that part of the country have no idea what life is like here in the New York area. They really think no one is, you know, blue collar or working class. Everyone's drinking a fancy cocktail on their way to a big event that no one is a hard worker. And, you know, I tell them, I'm like, you know, my mom's a security guard. She works a 70 hour week. She's 60 years old, you know, to like, and uh, I, I almost sometimes wish we could have more of an exchange of people from the same social class, like working class people from different parts of the country with each other, because no one's come into the rescue of, of those people whose lives have been threatened and there's no manufacturing jobs. These things aren't coming back here. We only have each other. So if we can't 
you know, come together and act in our interest and get over that, you know, the, the people in power, the 1% is always going to exploit us and keep us divided. Yeah, and also people on the coast, you know, they, they assume that people that live in the interior of the countries are, you know, rednecks and, you know, all this other yeah. stuff too. You know? I, I, I don't know if I assume that they were rednecks, but to me, when I first went to Oklahoma City and saw there was like this giant gay neighborhood and gay businesses and that straight people patronize them. And um, I've been to Oklahoma City. Yeah, it, it blew times, my so. mind. It was so yeah. much cooler. I mean, I kind of expected it to have like good rock and roll bars. They actually had less than I thought it would. But, um, but you know, it has more lesbian bars than Manhattan has. And that's, which is crazy. And so I, I had a lot of misconceptions about them, but then there's other things that I, I have to say, I was like, you know, shocked to be called a Yankee. I never oh, grew yeah. up thinking that people from the South or the Midwest or, you know, whatever you want to call it, those parts of the country were, were different than me in you know, that, that way. That, that Yankee thing, it's funny. I, I was telling the story recently. Um, a good friend of mine lives down in Richmond, and this is going back maybe 10 or 15 years. And I was down there visiting. I was, you know, we were sitting in a restaurant, and he got up to, you know, go to, the, to use the restroom. And I overheard a conversation behind me of these two uh, ladies referring to people as Yankees. And I was like, what the hell is this, man? This is like, <laughs> this is like the, you know, the Civil War ended, like, you know. Yeah, are there carpetbaggers too? Like, yeah. what, like what's going on here? Yeah, but uh, but yeah, it's it's just like such an odd disconnect that people have with each other, and um, you know, the one of the one of the ironies is that you know, everyone has so much attention put on social media and all this you know perceived connection that everyone has, but the reality is that there's almost we're we're, no, we're lonelier now than we ever were, really, with all this alleged connection that everyone has oh yeah i mean we're definitely you know interacting with someone on a digital platform and being able to relate to them face to face or building any kind of you know real community are such different things and i agree with you i really think it's made real connection and true community a lot harder yeah. to establish so one of the things there's been this narrative that's been you know i'm sort of forced to deal with some of these things you know being uh you know, even though I don't like to read press or I don't like to really get too involved in music journalism or any of this other stuff, there's, uh, there's this narrative that seems to be um, percolating about racism and uh, you know, national socialism in, within like, the extreme music world. But I find it interesting that they left homophobia out of the conversation. Yeah, well, you don't need to go extreme to find the homophobia. <laughs> But um, which I always, you know, growing up, that's something that when I was in middle school, you know, before the Internet and when you're trying to find other people who are like you, to me, I was always, uh, you know, just looking for that goth kid or that punk kid, that metal kid. It's like if you were dressed in all black, I wanted to hang out with you and I would go up to you and talk to you. And it always shocked me. The homophobia from at least the, the metal fans that I grew up around in, in Newark, New Jersey, always shocked me because I always thought I'm inherently more metal than you like so much more metal than you because you might not believe in the Bible or, you know, it's a time where everyone's reading the satanic Bible oh, and yeah. doing those things, you know, Satan's big in the late eighties. And I'm like, but I'm inherently profane. Like my very existence is so anti-Christian that you should think that's awesome that I'm so <laughs> offensive to Christians, but you don't. And I never understood why. And I always would tell people, I'm like, you know what? Some of these kids are just jocks in all black. Yeah. I'll have to agree with that. You know, um, yeah, it's like, 
you know the the sort of like hyper masculinization of, uh, of of metal and the you know it's, it's always been a little suspect to me too. Uh, all right, I need to say there's nothing more queer or more gay than being hyper masculine. When you look at uh, you know Tom of Finland and these things are these like hyper masculine imagery, it's totally queer. And in terms of you know underground in our subcultures, if I want to kind of trace them historically a little bit to like right after World War II when biker culture starts, where people come back from World War II and they feel disenfranchised and they don't want to participate in mainstream America and they start these biker clubs. These biker clubs, the straight and the gay ones, they show up in the same places at the same time. That leather aesthetic, that, you know, like Marlon Brando in the wild one, leather jacket, that happens at the same time. It's not appropriated one from the other. They're one and the same thing. They were queer bikers all along. And, and it's the, the same with metal. Post-World post, post World War II? Yeah, yeah, post-World War II is where this whole aesthetic is born. And you can say yeah. that everything that, you know, punk aesthetics and goth aesthetics and metal aesthetics become, you kind of trace them back to that and the evolution of that. Yeah, because I was aware of the post-world, like, you know, the Hells Angels, you know. I mean, there's, there's debate over the origin of, the, of the, the club, but basically my understanding, too, was that after World War II, these, these guys came back most likely suffering from PTSD and were just didn't want to fit into society, and they kind of, like... That's why there is, like, sort of, like, um, like a military regimentation to buy motorcycle clubs. You know, you have to, like, prospect, you know, and then you... You get full patch, and you know there's all these like hierarchical sort of. But I wasn't aware that there were gay, big gay uh, bike clubs. Well, but the, the thing with it too is, um, what's interesting is that World War II, as horrifying as it was, was one of the in, you know in modern America the first chances that gay men had to meet each other, because they were in these long-term situations around only men. They weren't isolated, so that was one of the first times that queer communities were established. Because with so many men, just percentage-wise, X amount had to be gay, and then they'd find each other. And then when the war ends, they of course feel the same way as everyone else does, but they've fi you know, finally connected with other people who are like them. They're meeting each other for the first time. So it you know, evolves in this other way, but it's kind of one and the same thing in many ways. Wow, so once you write a book about that, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of like books about Sonny Barger, and, you know, the Hell's Angels and all the different, there's so, that would be an interesting study to do. Yeah. There's a great book actually that I recommend to any, anyone who's interested and it's called um, Beyond Shame, I believe it's Reclaiming Radical um, Gay Sexuality. And it kind of goes into that of, you know, tracing, his, putting historical context to, you know, to modern queer people. Because, uh, you know, obviously you don't, you're not taught this in school. So I think now everyone's um, trying really hard to document the, the oldest gay people you can find to, you know, get that history down accurately. So there's a lot of interesting uh, queer oral history projects if you dig around. That's funny. I just like to talk more about the, the leather uh, scene because since you mentioned that, you know, Rob Halford, I just you know, sure. saw a Judas Priest a couple of years, a couple of months ago. And um, I remember being a young man and, uh, you know, like 12, I think, or a young kid, actually 12, getting into heavy metal, Judas Priest, Rob Halford, leather, right? Riding crop, you know, like leather, leather hat, like the whole, like, you know, at the time I'm like, it didn't even register, obviously, because I didn't wasn't fully even aware of, of homosexuality or even my own sexuality as a, a young boy. Um, and then older kids, you know, in the metal sort of oeuvre, just denying the fact that that actually was a gay image. 
And then years later, Halford comes out as being gay. And there was an uproar, you know. Oh my yeah. God, I can't believe it. So how could people miss that, like in your opinion? Well, you there, there's a lot of things. About? One is, the, the first thing I want to say to everybody is that queer people, a gay, lesbian, trans, bi, have been a part of every single musical movement in this country from the very beginning. There is no underground anything that exists without queer people, whether or not they're out, whether or not you know them. That you can trade, you know, the, the, there were queer out blues singers, you know, in the 40s. You see, have like Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith singing songs about love and women. And um, certainly things like punk and metal, there were queer people in there from, from the inception. And I think that it's, it's, it seems so difficult to imagine a time when we were more naive, but we didn't have access to each other and each other's history and imagery. Um, before the internet so until you see maybe a police academy movie and they go to leather bar which is certainly the first time i saw a leather aesthetic was yeah. watching a police academy movie with my dad sure i had no idea what that was you don't connect it and you don't get it because i remember being um six years old in 1984 and seeing boy george all the time him being at the height of his fame i never understood that boy george was gay i never thought about that i didn't get it one i didn't know about my own sexuality, but I didn't know much about gay people. I just thought he, you know, like looked awesome, like Cindy Lauper. And, um, I, for me, you know, I'm 40 years old. So I didn't really start seeing a lot of images of gay people until the AIDS crisis. And those were the images. So I don't know how well-versed most people would have been to a leather aesthetic. Yeah. But, um, okay. Yeah. Police Academy. That was probably the first time I was aware of the leather, heavy leather scene, but cruising. Oh, sure. That was open, an eye-opening film for me. One of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> because um, it, like just, it was a great movie. I mean, I love just the darkness of that yeah. story. was amazing. And, you know, I, was, I mean, my, just a little background here. The first drive, my parents took me to see The Exorcist in a drive-in when I was like a kid. Like, I, I, a young, I saw The Exorcist as a kid, too. Yeah, yeah. like some young, like... I'm like, what? So that explains a lot about my, you know, I think my uh, proclivities in adulthood, you know. So anyway, just, um, you know, I watched, I, don't, I must have been in my early teens when, when I watched uh, Cruising on VHS. And I was like, suddenly things started making sense to me. Like, oh, okay. Like, oh, these guys look cool, man. They got these like leather jackets. Because I was into the Ramones maybe, you know. And sure. Rob Halford, you know, certainly I had a poster of Judas Priest in my, my, my bedroom. Rob Halford, you know. Leather jacket, bare chest, hat, riding crop, Harley Davidson. And I was like, wow, this guy, these guys are dressed like Rob Halford and like Joey Ramone. So it's like, but then I started seeing that that was like a whole other scene. And I was like, well, okay. It sort of made sense to me and I became more aware of that. And one of the things like, we're talking about hyper-masculinity. And, you know, I was also really into Conan the Barbarian. Like right of around course. the same time. So there's a, a very, very strong parallel between Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian and the way he's portrayed in comic books and a Tom of Finland drawing. Yeah, I think one of the first, this is so embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you anyway, I think one of the first times I was attracted to a man was the Beastmaster okay. in the 80s. And that's certainly, now it doesn't seem that hyper masculine, but at the time, like you're saying a barbarian, like, you know, like long hair and muscles and, you know, from the wild and... Uh, yeah, so I, I, it seems so ridiculous all these years later, because, but I think that we're so much more aware of you know, queer culture and queer imagery that certainly when you're a kid and 
bef- like pre-internet, access to information and images was really hard. Yeah, you know? definitely. Like you would hear about something and then you, you like you'd hear about a band and it would take you two, three months before you found someone who had a tape to tape it from or you found it at a store. And I think it's it's the same thing. And now I look back at, you know, Freddie Mercury or Boy George or George Michael. And all people who I didn't read as gay, even as a gay person um, coming up. Yeah, looking back though, especially, um, you know, like George Michael and, uh, and Freddie Mercury for sure, you know. Maybe, and not even in the beginning, because they, they were pretty glammy Queen. Yeah. And the name Queen. Of, of course, it seems so obvious, right. but it, you know, it really didn't feel that way at the time. Like it, it really didn't. And I think that it was also, just a time of really um, outlandish, you know, that that from, I guess, the mid-70s to the mid-80s. It was just a time of so many outlandish looks, not even just for musicians, but professional wrestlers and these outlandish right. things that it kind of blurs that line where nothing stands out as much. Everyone looks kind of crazy. Everyone has this really over-the-top look, whether even in hip-hop, they're wearing furs and bright colors and leathers. Like Everyone at that time, you know, was outlandish so now the big question and we can build a uh, you know a sort of uh, you know theorem around this is is that hyper masculine image inherently gay um i would say yes because i think if you <laughs> fetishize and obsess over like the look of an uh, you know quote unquote ideal man so much and picture it it means you appreciate you know the male body and the male physique whether or not that makes you want to have homosexual sex, I think is really different from it being gay imagery. I think there's a lot of things I, you know, if I think being gay and being homosexual are two different things. I always, I do. I always tell people when they're like, Oh, is it a choice? Or anyone brings that up. I'm like, I think the homosexual part of it is not a choice. If you're born wanting to sleep with people of the same sex, that's just who you are. Now the gay part of it, that's the part that connects you to a history of other people, to a history of art and music and a community okay. and a lineage. You have to choose that. You can deny it. You'll always want to have, you know, sex with, with people of the same gender, but you don't have to claim everything else around it. You can be in total denial. And this world is full of people, oh, yeah, of, full of people I know, I like that. Of personally. So yeah, yeah sure. full of people like that. So I would say, you know, is it inherently homosexual? I don't know, but it's, you know, it, fetishizing the, the body, you know, the, uh, making an ideal male body. When you think about even uh, the people in the Renaissance who did it, you know, Statues of David, those are gay people. That's historically the people who have done that have been gay people. Now, one of the things that, um, you know, I'm quite fascinated with uh, Rome and Greece and the mythologies and all that sort of stuff. And I, I like to challenge the idea that, like, I think back then before we had like a monotheistic religious practice in place that those kind of pagan cultures probably didn't really it, to them they i don't think it even mattered if it was like i think they were free to go would do whatever they wanted to yeah well there's there's um you know it expressed itself in a lot of different ways in the ancient world like certainly in in you know in ancient greece and rome there's times when soldiers would have uh, a you know another male companion who was younger But that was, you know, while you were at war and then there were certain things around it. And there's tribes in Africa where there's relationships between young men and older men. And it seems as a mentorship in a way, but it's it's homosexual sex. It's just viewed very differently. It's it's you know, it's really hard to put like our contemporary lens of what we think a queer person is 
on another time and culture because it was you know totally different to them. So that's why I agree with you. It's like they didn't yeah. see it as as gay. Well, I think it's a Christian thing because in Thailand, it's uh, they have a very permissive. They're very permissive in Thailand with how people express themselves sexually, and it's not a Christian culture. You know, they're 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 Buddhists. You know, for the most part. Yeah, no, um, for sure. But I mean, and but the sad part is, even in Thailand, you know, trans people are marginalized. So there are things that are universal in terms of the opportunity and the access. Like, I don't think anywhere in this world does a queer person have access to the same things that a straight person does. Do you think that in like in a place like Thailand, that it has a lot more to do with uh, like sexual, um, what's it, the uh, tourism, sex, sure. sex tourism? Because a lot of you know, Falang go there to get their freak flag, fly their freak flag, and they come back to, uh, you know, whatever, Europe or the United States or Canada or wherever they're from, you know. And, but I think that, like, maybe in that culture, if it were just kind of left sort of to do its own thing without that weird Christian bent, you know, these, like, weird European Christians coming over there, I think that that sort of um, persecution would really exist, really. Yeah, I, I really think that, you know, the same in, you know, with, with Native Americans or, you know, pre-colonial Africa, that you would see express, it expressed in many different ways, but you would absolutely see open sex between people of the same gender. Like I said, it might be viewed as a mentorship. It might be viewed as, you know, a trans person might be two-spirited. It, it'll have a different expression in the culture, but at its core, it's still, you know, that kind of relationship, that kind of uh, an identity. So now, a big, big hot topic of these last few years, and something that I personally think cost us the election, <laughs> us meaning Democrats, which technically I re registered as a Democrat specifically to vote in the primaries in the last couple of years. I've, uh, for most of my life, I've been, a, I've been an independent, you know, hmm. and uh, but this whole, the, all the gender politics and um, you know, kind of uh, you know, pronouns and all this other stuff. It's like, um, I feel like it's, I mean, you know, just from coming from me, you know, like my, my perspective on it, um, I just want people to be happy basically. And I support whatever choices people make, but you know, to kind of be like chastised for not knowing what someone prefers to be called. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, no, I get that. And I, I understand that people might feel that way, but, um, I think it's pretty easy, you know, just to ask people what they'd be called. I'm perfectly happy to call you whatever you want. I have, if I don't have any reason to disrespect you, I wouldn't. Um, in terms of it being a divisive thing, I think that's this administration has manipulated the dialogue and exploited, uh, you know, the trans community to their benefit and really use this arbitrary thing where it's, there's so many businesses in this country where everyone uses the same bathroom. I've worked in tons of offices sure. where everybody uses the same bathroom. And um, that's not a controversial thing. It was, it was brought up to exploit them and to put the fear of people in them and to really truly misinform people about, <coughs> about the trans community and, and what that means because it's, it's, a, it's an umbrella term. It means a lot of different things. It's a range of things. And when it comes to pronouns, um, you know, there's friction between different generations of queer people because uh, people, who I guess, are in, in their 20s now had have had the benefit, many of them, of a higher education and of learning from scholarship about queer people that older generations didn't. So someone like me is that I learned about it out on the streets. I got called a faggot on the streets. People threw a bottle at me on the streets. I've been, you know, many times I've been called 
a million things. So I feel like I have the right to say them and reclaim them in whichever way I want to because I live this life. I've suffered this persecution. In some ways, I made it safer for you just like people made it safer for me. So you don't get to police me or, or tell me about my experience. But I do think that that's just part of evolution and evolving as a people that, you know, language evolves. Language isn't a static thing. And I think the same thing with identity and that ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, I don't think it's that hard to ask someone, how do you, how do you like to be referred as? And they're like, they, they, there. And I think that if you make the mistake and slip and misgender someone, if you're honest and you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, just correct yourself and keep moving. Um, in my experience, that's, people appreciate that, that you're, you know, just making that effort and asking them directly. I work with a lot of trans artists and, um, and I've worked with people who've, you know, who've transitioned years after I knew them. So I was very used to referring them a certain way and then it's changed and it's a learning curve. It's not easy for anyone. I really think it's, it's the intention behind it. And that if you're an open person trying to do your best, people are going to read that on you. Yeah. You know, I personally, I've never had any, you know, I never had any friction with anybody, but you know, with, with all the articles you read about everything, you know, it's, just, of course, you know, it builds a narrative just like a lot of things. Yeah. And, it, and that's on purpose though. You have to, you know, have that critical filter. That's like, you know, this is, this is propaganda. There's, you know, I'm not being threatened by these people. How, how are we being threatened by the most vulnerable community in this country? There is no one in this country more vulnerable than a trans person of color. That is the most vulnerable community in our country. How can they possibly threaten you? That's a good point, you know, and you, you can go on to like, for example, my parents, I love them dearly, but we differ on so many fundamental things. So when I'm spending time with my family, you know, the news is on and they're being bombarded by all this, this narrative, you know, which, you know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, there's, there's someone's take on something, yet there's no visible proof that any of these things really exist you know so being being like um, critical of some of the things that you read and hear and perspective and being aware that you're being manipulated is something that slips by a lot of people you know what I mean and um, so applying that logic to the mm. situation is something that more people should do really you know because I fall I fall I'm guilty of it too I read some article someone fucking tags me in Facebook or whatever and it's like oh you know, and you feel outraged and, oh, wow, you know, this is, you know, they're, someone's going to, like, call me this thing or whatever because I don't have this, like, I don't agree with one. But the thing is, it's all part of a narrative that either the left or the right is trying to fucking develop for their own agendas. Yeah, and I think that's why it's important for us to connect with each other face-to-face -face and in person and to create spaces uh, for dialogue and where all kinds of people feel comfortable hanging out together. Yeah. Like you said, that's always been the benefit of being in New York City. I certainly, you know, when I, when I DJ or put on parties, I put a lot of effort into that of, is this inclusive? Are people gonna be here? Because you can't read about something. You need to live it, you know? Yeah, totally. That's... Yeah, and that's like one of the biggest problems, like, like you know, with young people these days, a lot of them don't even leave the house, man. It's like, when I was a kid, I wanted to, you know, play. I wanted to ride my bike. I wanted to go out and explore the world and get into trouble and go places I wasn't supposed to go to, see people I wasn't supposed to see. Of course. You know, but like, I see, you know, there's different family members I have that they have, you know, kids who are growing up and they don't, they just want to stay home and fuck around with their phones, you know? 
So everything that they're getting is almost like this, almost a virtual reality, like a simulation of the world that they're taking in through this device, be it uh, an iPhone or an iPad or their computer. So it's like this once removed simulation of the world without actually going out there and meeting any of these people. Yeah, it's vicarious. And that's what I mean. It's really easy to give an opinion you know, and, and type it into your phone and then put it down and keep watching it. It's a television show. It's not, it's not as easy to give that opinion to someone's face who's going to answer you back in that moment who has a perspective. And um, kind of what we were saying before about people from different regions of the country, but I, I just think that that's the only answer is for us to be around each other and talk to each other because, you know, to those people, if they think that they're not interacting with, you know, gay, lesbian, and trans people on a regular basis, they're very wrong. That's, it's, impossible in this country unless you live in a very isolated place where you see very few people it's like you're you're around us that's kind of the american way though being like this you know the united states being isolated from the rest of the world too it's sort of this like it's really ironic in a way because you know americans like to think of themselves as these kind of like you know desperado pioneers pushing the bound you know the border westward and but the reality is that we're if you go, if you travel to Europe, all the countries are right next to each other. You know, you got Spain, Italy, Greece, Germany, Slovenia, like Belgium. They're all there, and people are constantly going across the borders. You know, traveling, mixing. Yeah. Everyone knows how to speak fifteen languages, and the, the different cultures commingle. But over here, we're just fucking Americans, man. Really, for the most part, you know, and, and the only influence that we have is like from immigrants coming in, and that's the another irony is our fear of fucking immigrants in this country. I want to know, you know, I, I just want to know what the hell Trump has against Mexican people, really. You know, um, I don't even know if he I don't even know if it's that deep. I don't even know if he has any deep thoughts about Mexican people or has ever interacted in any meaningful way with Mexican people. I, I would certainly <laughs> doubt that. I just think that. Uh, you know, he's someone who's the face of something and that the brains is someone else behind it and they feed him a narrative that he repeats and he's happy just to see his face everywhere every day. And that, that's all he wants that's not deeper than that with him, that he just, you know, wants celebrity like he's wanted his whole life. I mean, he showed us who he is decades ago. I don't think that's different. You know, yeah. it, when you're from New York, I'm like, he's been a joke since I was a child, literally. He's been, he's been a joke to me and people in this area for 30-something years. Oh, definitely, you know. And um, I mean, most recently said there was some like uh, executive order because like right now, if you're, you know, if you're listening to this podcast in the month of June, we're experiencing, you know, this this horrible, uh, you know, very what I'm looking at is infringement of human rights with uh, Mexican immigrants being separated from their families. And um, so you were saying that. Just in the, in, the, in the last few hours, there was some sort of development. Yeah, it part. seems like, of course, that he's going to sign an executive order to stop that now. But, you know, the narrative with him is he's going to create a problem, blame it on someone else, then pretend like he's the one who fixed it and take the credit. But, um, you know, what you were talking about infringement on human rights. The word I would use for it is terrorism. Mm-hmm. And um, it's already mission accomplished. I, in my heart of hearts, I really think that what this administration wanted is for the world to see images of children in cages for them to know that that's what's gonna happen to you here and for people throughout um, all of Latin America to be horrified by it and for them to think twice about trying it. That's terrorism, that's propaganda, that's how terrorism works. And even if he reverses it now, those images are out there, the damage is done, like that fear is there. People are gonna think twice. And the sad thing is, I'm sure there's people who are all for it. 
you know, knowing oh, that I, reason. I know people that are all for it. I sure as fuck don't. Oh, and if man. and if I do know you and you're all for it, don't tell me unless you want to get oh, slapped. Oh man, I I hate to tell you, <laughs> but I, I have there are family members I have that think that that's a good idea, and you know, like I you said, know, I'm an illegal immigrant too. I'm just a queer person. I came here illegally in 1984 with my mom, and I was here illegally for um, 11 years. And, you know, uh-huh. moved here only speaking Spanish, and um, you know, again, it's the vulnerable people in this in our society are always the ones who are going to pay the heaviest price. And you know, in my case, I came from Spain, and even then, it was very difficult. But that's different than uh, you know, people of color who come from other parts, and they're always going to pay the price first. Trans people. Uh, people with no money, people of color, that's that's who's really paying the price of our administration. And if you don't like those kind of people, of course you're all for it. I just, yeah, it, it blows my mind. I mean, some of their family members I have, and my family is primarily an immigrant family. My mom's first-generation American. Like, that side of the family comes from Italy. My dad's side of the family has been here a little bit longer. But when the Irish came off the boat, they just put him, you know, put him to war. You know, they just drafted him into the army and sent him to fight for a, Civil War, basically, with something they have nothing to do with. So immigrants are being exploited by this country for since the beginning of the country, really. Oh, of course. I mean, it's this. We live in a country that founded on exploitation, and capitalism requires exploitation, or it doesn't work. The only way capitalism works is for the people on top to exploit the ones on the bottom. That's not. It's not theory or controversial opinion. That's how it works. I mean, our country was built on, the ex, you know, on slavery yeah. and the exploitation of anyone possible. One of the, uh, like, the thing that, you know, related to this is, uh, you know, anyone who supports, oh, yeah, we should take these kids from their family. Okay. All right. If you're that heartless of a human being, let me appeal to the more pragmatic side. Who the hell is going to pay for care for these kids? You have to put them in a cage somewhere. You have to feed them, give them medical attention, clothe them. And that's all taxpayer dollars that are being spent on that. So on that purely like draconian sort of mindset, wouldn't you rather have their families take care of them as opposed to the burden yeah. of that? I just don't understand. None of it makes any sense. No, it, it doesn't make sense because everybody knows that immigrants actually are far less likely to commit crimes because they're scared of being deported and that they all work. My parents worked like crazy. You know, there's... No one comes to, you know, the idea of the welfare queen in this country is greatly exaggerated. The welfare queen, is, you know, is a white man that works at a bank. That's who's getting the welfare money. It's not someone who's, you know, selling a couple pampers to make a couple extra dollars for some Lucy's. And, uh, you know, I just think there's a lot of misrepresentation of the same people in our country because it's it's convenient to misrepresent them. And immigrants is, is just an easy target. There's our entire food supply depends on them. It would be crazy. We could never get rid of them. It would, our country would collapse in so many ways, but no one's going to tell you that, you know, even though it's the truth, this administration's never going to, you know, just yeah, give I mean, you the black and white. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, it, it's the thing that seems painfully obvious to me is that like, well, okay, you have a problem with immigrants illegally entering the country. It's like, well, why not make them citizens? Why not like have them process like some, yeah, a some path to citizenship? Some path to citizenship presented to them so that they can actually you can start taxing their taxing them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm know? kind of a hippie too, to be honest. Like, as much as I want to say that, there's part of me when I think about immigration that's just thinks about how crazy 
just that idea is it's you know of of how offended they are i'm like are you gonna ask a canadian goose for papers whenever you know flies over the border like yeah. we're animals on the same planet oh like, yeah well I mean, if you look at, all right. And also, also, one thing I want to say about the wall is if it ever happens, <laughs> I hope it protects Mexicans from Americans because no one's ever talking about all the Americans that cross over to Juarez and to Tijuana for prostitution, for access to drugs, for prescriptions that they don't want. And they go there and they get trashed and, you know, they sex tourism there sure. too. And then they cross back over the border. What about protecting those people? You know, it's like th there's people in Mexico who are in danger from Americans on the border as well, in real danger. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the whole world is in danger of Americans. Have you seen, like, yeah. Americans over in, <laughs> abroad in Europe? Americans and British people in Europe are the worst, straight up. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, we had a layover in Amsterdam one time, and um, it was like a 12-hour layover. And we left, obviously I was going to sit in the airport for like 12 hours. So we went into the city and we're just, you know, hanging around, getting falafels, going to the red light district, like whatever. And, um, I was just like, oh, obviously you can see the Americans and the British people. Cause they're the ones who are making the most fucking noise. They're the ones who are the drunkest on the street. And they're the ones who are making the biggest ruckus. And I was just like. This is why everyone hates the, the Americans. Yeah, that's just... a tourist thing too. But certainly, you know, my, my family's from Barcelona and, and, and I definitely see plenty of drunk British and German and Dutch people going yeah. crazy, doing well, things they would never do in their own country. That's true, yeah. On the street in Spain. But I guess maybe that's why, because you're not in your own country. Lord knows, I know Spanish people act crazy, so. I just, man, when I'm overseas, <laughs> I just like, I try not to fucking even, yeah. I just keep to myself. But at the same time, I'm so, you know, I'm so proud to be from here. You know, it's, I almost feel like growing up in the New York area is like winning the lottery is one of the best things that can ever happen to you of being exposed to all different kinds of people your whole life and knowing so much about so many things inherently just from walking the street or taking the train and knowing that and and I you know growing up you always think about what you don't have but I, I really appreciate that and I wish that for other people and I I guess I credit it with not really feeling that way so I've always you know lived around different Muslim communities, Middle Eastern immigrants and black Muslims. And, you know, there are always, uh, you know, immigrants, like recent immigrants from Ireland and Poland when I was growing up, just like there were from all of Latin America. And it's not, uh, it's, I think that most people who have this idea of the other as this threat, it's an imagined one because they don't, they've never met that person. They've never met one. I have this conversation with, you know, people in my extended family or that I know from other places where they're like, well, aren't you, you know, you're from New York. Aren't you scared of terrorism and you're gay? Aren't you scared you're going to get thrown off a roof? I'm like, I'm scared of Mike Pence. No yeah. one's throwing me off a New York roof for being gay. You know, like that's not, that's just not how the world works. That's not, no, I'm not scared of that. I'm scared of exactly what's going on, of, of their making discrimination against me legal. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It's really funny that you mentioned, you know, being, you know, terrorism and living in New York. Because I, I mean, obviously, you know, not the Twin the twin Towers were, you know, the fucking travesty that happened, tragedy that happened yeah. back in, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago at this point. And I, I still, even in the midst of all that, I still never really felt like, fear or animosity towards like Muslims or any of this. Sort of no, stuff. I actually think a lot of people from here felt it towards our country. 
and was like, you did this to us. Because as much as, you know, quote unquote, you know, patriots or everyone hates New York on, on the right until it's time to bring up 9-11 <coughs> yeah. and exploit it for your convenience. But I, it made me really suspicious of the, of even more suspicious rather of our government. And, you know, why did you do that? And then, you, you know, you see these images of George Bush reading a children's book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's when I was, you know, scared for my life on the street. And I know what was happening, trying to find a way home. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I think I was working in New Jersey at the time. And, uh, like, I, a lot of the people I were, I had, I mean, I was an, I'm an engineer. Or I was an engineer at that point. So, like, my boss was Turkish, Muslim. A lot of my coworkers were Muslims, you know, from various different countries. Jordan, you know. And I, I, I noticed that they started feeling uncomfortable. And, I, you know, because of just the rhetoric that was being put out there about Islam and because prior to 9-11, no one really, really thought about the Middle East. I mean, it was always this kind of thing like, okay, yeah, oil, the Middle East, Islam. But that was a real turning point in the way that people that were, you know, from that part of the world were viewed, I think, in this country. Yeah, well, you know, I still, you know, I guess us being attacked here definitely heightened it. But even during the first Iraq war, I guess in like 91, I, I had Iraqi kids that I went to school with. And I remember the teachers having to speak to everyone of, you know, don't say anything right, bad to okay. them. Don't say anything against them. Don't do that. But that still felt kind of new. And then that first World Trade Center bomb, I think it was like 93. And, um, but, but, but yeah, that changed the dialogue completely. I don't think people had this fear of terrorism Period. Even though, you know, we had seen plenty of terrorism. I mean, Oklahoma City was right. in the 90s and things like that. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's a totally different landscape post 9-11. Oh, know? yeah, that, the culture of fear. Yeah. That's what happened to the rest of the world. Where everyone's like, oh, 9-11 happened to everybody. I'm like, well, 9-11 happened to people in New York. But everything that came after happened to the whole world. We really live in this culture of fear. And um, I think we're still at a fever pitch of it. And that's what makes, you know, Donald Trump possible. So to change the subject drastically, did you go to any of the Misfits shows? You know, <laughs> I feel like the Misfits got nerve charging the people of New Jersey $300 to be in front of them. I'm like, my first Misfits tape was like a tape of a tape of a tape passed down from, you know, Jersey punk legacies. And so Misfits <laughs> is like, is, is as close to religion as I get in some ways. And um, I really, you know, it was two blocks from my house in Newark. So I definitely hung out outside of it. But... I just couldn't justify the price of it. And I didn't think it would, when I really thought about it objectively, I didn't know if it would be that exciting to me. Cause I feel like I've seen Danzig yeah. sing Misfit songs many times in my life, a, a lot of times. And I really just want his voice to be there. I don't, I don't really care about Jerry only, and maybe that's sacrilege, but I just don't. No, I, I just need Glenn singing the songs and no matter who's playing it, if they're doing a decent job and his voice sounds good that day, like I'm, I'm good. I tend to agree with you on that. Cause I think that like, a lot of times these like um, reunion type money grabs that happen is like a nostalgia trip for a lot of people. And uh, I mean, the Misfits were like a time and a place, man. And I mean, I'm, even me, uh, even even Mike Hill is too, too young to have actually seen the Misfits in their prime, in their heyday. And I think that if you missed it first time around, that's it. You don't really get a chance to catch it. So... Seeing Glenn a couple of years ago, they did those le legacy tour, you know, and, and he, had, he had Doyle up there and, you know, they did huh. Sam Hain songs and that, that was enough for me. But knowing how bad of a guitar player Jerry only is, like, 
I don't think I really needed to see that. You know what I'm trying to say? I mean, I didn't go. Yeah, no, and also the fact that it's in an arena. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like, I don't know if I want to see that in an arena because I don't even see Danzig in an arena. I usually see him at a a club. You know, I love to see him in Jersey at the Starland Ballroom. Every few years, he'll do like a like a homecoming show around Christmas. Yeah, and and he usually does Sam Hain and Misfit songs at those too. It's crazy, and they're just so much fun that I can't imagine. Misfits isn't the kind of band I want to see with this big production. You know what I mean? It'd be the same thing as if, you know, Lux was still here. You wouldn't want to see the cramps at the garden. How, no, how would that be fun? No, that wouldn't be fun at all. It would be like so far So away. disconnected, exactly. Watching That's something it on to an be LED screen, you know. In someone's face. Yeah, you want someone in someone's face. Now, Glenn is a, is a complicated guy, too. Yeah. I'll tell you something about that I love to tell people because every, you know that there's those Henry and Glenn comic books Absolutely. that imagine the love life of, of Henry Rollins and Glenn Danzig and everyone's like, oh, Glenn would never like this and Glenn Danzig's homophobic, this or that. I don't believe it. I don't, one, I've never seen anything to substantiate that. And two, uh, one of those shows at Starland Ballroom, uh, the two people I was with, our car had broke down and okay. we needed someone from you know security to help us sure. and they were like just wait for it to be over and i guess they told the band and they asked us to come backstage oh, cool. and say hi to us and i was with uh, my best friend who's trans and another one of my close friends was a black woman and he had just this face of joy you could tell that he was not expecting us to come through the door and do that and you know stayed and spoke to us and i could just see how happy he was i'm like you think this is i can tell you think this is really cool that we're here seeing you because there's no one else in this club is we stood out you know sure and um and i always just go back to that where i'm like you can't fake that you know when someone's the, someone's first impression of you the look on their face i think tells you everything you Absolutely. know yeah i agree with that yeah, just, you know, a lot of people have ideas. And one of, the, one of the things about those comics that, um, the problem I have with those comics is that the, I mean, I don't know what the motivations were, but it's like, there's somehow like the fact, if they were gay, right, that there is some kind of diminishing of them. And I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that if, if Glenn or Henry were both gay, that would be, it's a sort of, completely irrelevant thing to me and my appreciation of like what they've done creatively nor would it change my opinion of them as men or whatever you know and I just thought it was like a little juvenile. You know? Yeah, but I think it goes back to what we were talking about hypermasculinity. They both okay. have these hypermasculine images that I don't think it was any, like, I don't think it was deeper than someone just thinking it was funny. Of, you know, people write fan fiction and do those things. They're like, you know, here are these two really tough guys. Imagine them as, like, just boyfriends who go grocery shopping together and domesticate these wild, you know, rock and roll men and paint them in these really, you know, kind of mundane queer life situations but but i know what you mean you know i don't think it's i think it's funny but um it's it's not the best thing ever and it definitely wouldn't change my opinion i i just thought they I'll weren't good comics either <laughs> i'll tell you something um kind of related to what you were just saying because uh, i was about to say that it wouldn't change my opinion of them if one of them came out but it would um i don't have no reason to believe either one of them's gay but it would mean a lot to me because when I was growing up, I didn't really have out queer musicians to look up to. No one, even Boy George wasn't out at that time in the early 80s. So I don't know, I didn't understand it about me, but I was coming to an understanding and I had no one to look up to. And I think that's so great that kids now have so many out people, so many out musicians in different ways as role models because it's, when you don't see yourself reflected in the world anywhere, it's so isolating and you wonder to yourself if you're ever gonna f- find it 
or how fucked up you are if, if it's yeah, really, totally. really that rare. And um, as much as we can talk about, um, you know, the buzzcocks and certainly, you know, the, the bags and the germs, there's been queer people in punk and this music. To this day, so many of our icons uh, are queer people and they're closeted. That makes me sad, particularly yeah. in metal and hard rock music. You see that a lot in, in hip hop. And um, I hope that we see the end of that day. You know, Absolutely. I would I would love to see a lot of out people making extreme music and um, and having, you know, just a general audience, not it not being a fringe thing that only other queer people support. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 definitely, you know, not there's definitely, you know, gay out players in extreme music, but not, you know, Rob Halford, obviously, was like the biggest icon out of all, you know, really. Hmm. And there's definitely I remember there was a, you know, whatever prehistoric time that was in the late 80s there was like this kind of like backlash to that which I, I believe wouldn't exist today though because obviously Judas Priest goes out and plays these, like, I want to believe that Mike but why do you think so many of the icons that we have because we have hard rock icons and metal icons that are, are gay and still closeted or queer why do you think that they don't do be and because I always think the only reason not to do it is you don't want to threaten your fan base you don't want to kind of risk your fame and your legacy you know, because if you've gone this far and you've built something and you didn't do it at the beginning. That's an interesting question, in which I, I really, I, you know, I think about that, too. But it's hard for me to answer that because I don't really have a, the hang up about that stuff. Like, I don't I'm not hung up about sexuality. And if I was gay, I would be out or I'd like to believe that I would, you know, um, you know, and, and I, I don't really I can see being uncomfortable with it being involved in like such a, a macho world of like extreme music where you know there's this real sort of brutal exterior and i but the first i guess the first tier of concern i would have would be just friends and family which is what everyone else has to deal with and then the larger persona of what other people would think but i think if i was able to overcome the hurdle of talk of, of my friends and family then the other stuff would would fall in line with that you know what i mean like i don't think that but i, I think that's speaking for me but if sure. i was if i was successful <laughs> and i had <laughs> fans and whatever ah, you know on. then then that might be a concern then you might have like someone in your in your ear being like hey, man, but know, even if but even if you, but even if not though i think a lot of people they, their concern starts when they're trying to be successful and they mm. still to this day think oh this is going to hold me back or this is going to um, ghettoize me where right, right, I right. won't get these other opportunities. Everything I do will always be preceded by, you know, like gay musician this or, you know, trans musician that. And it'll always be this qualifier before everything else that you've done or that you're putting out in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's once again, like that, that's an interesting question because I do believe having seen many different crowds across the country and overseas that probably homophobia is alive and well and that it did have I get you know I like to believe that fans of metal are more open minded in some ways but then again like I've been on some tours where I definitely believe that's not the case well I was going to ask you if you yeah. know if you've witnessed it or been around homophobia and transphobia oh yeah absolutely sense. We had we had a guy actually in my in the band. I'm not going to name any names, but who was uh, you know a filling guy that you know did some touring with us last year. Who would 
you know, drop uh, those 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 terms which I don't like to use, uh, sure. referring to, to gay people, and and it was, uh, but it wasn't done like in a it was done in a hurtful way, you know right. what I mean? So it made me believe that okay, this guy has unresolved issues with that sort of expression, and he's like comfortable saying that, and I I thought that wasn't very cool, really. Yeah, and and in turn, that's why I think that if those people realize that. Um so many of the records that they, you know, love or bands they go see have queer people in them. I wonder if they would still feel that way, which is another reason for artists to come out. It's not just so other queer kids can kind of, you know, see you and, and look up to you and feel, uh, feel courage th- vicariously through you, but also so other people can, can realize that, that we're, you know, kind of in, in every scene, always have been, and even records that are made by heterosexual people are still super queer. That like the cornerstones, <laughs> the cornerstones of our music. You know, you think like the New York Dolls. They might all be heterosexual men, but no one's gonna ever tell me the Dolls aren't a queer band. Do you listen to a song like Jet Boy? That's yep. that's a queer rock and roll song. Or you, you know, like Lou Reed or David Bowie or or any of that. But it goes more than that. I think Prince. when you go to extreme, yeah. yeah, when you go into extreme music and any kind of underground, you think about Christian Death and Roz Williams. That's not a straight person, you know. No, definitely not. I and mean, even Lux Interior, as much as and with Ivy, I don't think you could describe him as straight. He's someone who loved to wear women's clothing and makeup and cat suits and explore kink and present himself really feminine, almost girly, and um, you know, be a plaything for her. And that's certainly all taken from queer culture and, and used that way. And I think that's what made them so cool and feel so dangerous and unpredictable. And that's why no matter how many, you know, psychobilly or punk bands that sound like that come out nothing ever feels like the cramps does because there's always that macho part of it they don't get that part of it the 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 anything goes sexuality of the cramps yeah that's the thing about a lot of um you know like like rockabilly dudes wearing eyeliner and like but but still sort of not being comfortable with that being influenced by you know a queer or sort of or even realizing it you know like i think people are really just don't have that conversation with themselves i'm like don't fool yourself like this is what that is and it's okay to think it looks cool and it's okay to think it sounds cool you know that has nothing to do with who you want to you know we want to fuck later one thing i just i gotta keep going back to this thing of uh you know masculinity and um and just because like i have i've had reflections on this over the last say 10 years or so about um yeah, definitely. Um, in our culture, it, it's sort of people they simplify it and reduce masculinity in a lot of ways to just one particular thing. Like if you like are into being healthy, strong, that you're a meathead. You know what I mean? That you can't be anything but somebody who just spends the whole day doing deadlifts or like punching a heavy bag or something like that. You can only be that one thing. You can't be intellectual. You can't be creative. You can't be sensitive. You can't be any of these things. And um, I just feel like there's like a... I, I'm, I'm not trying to get into this manosphere bullshit that I hear being thrown around about like how white men have it so tough. But it's like... I do think that that is, is misunderstood a lot of times and simplified by people. Absolutely. And I agree with you. But I also think... You know, some of the people who partake in it simplify it. But um, masculinity, like femininity, is, is a range of things. And it has so many different expressions. And they're all valid, as is anything that's in between them. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's an umbrella term. You know, and, and people are always policing each other that I think, and I think that's the real problem. 
that there's always this, and it's the same thing with you know, like in any underground where there's a people going to tell you what's what the mores are and what right. the rules are, mm -hmm. and that you're not following them. But most of us aren't this archetype. You might look like it, it might seem like you are, but we're these complex people, and it's perfectly you know, normal for someone to want to go to the gym and be healthy and take care of themselves and be a sensitive person. And someone can, you know, really love gardening and be a real asshole. That's true. Yeah. Just because <laughs> you're going. Nothing, it's just, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost like these 80s movies, like The Breakfast Club, where everyone has this role and they play yeah, that totally. role 100%. Yep. And real people aren't that way. And um, I think the conversation around masculinity is just really needs to be kind of fine-tuned to the part of it that's about the toxic aspects of sure. it, you know, the need to dominate or these other things. But uh, they kind of go hand in hand. We were talking before about hyper-masculinity, right. but there's something really beautiful about that. When you see this, you know, idealized man or do that, or you see someone exercising or a gym, I don't know. There's just something that's kind of, you know, it's just so on purpose and curated that way that it's also not rough around the edges. It's not that it might look really masculine, but it's, it's not tough at the same time. Like these sure. things kind of have intersections as opposed to there being like, this is masculine. Anything that's like, this is not. Yeah, no, totally. I agree with that. You know, but I guess the point I was trying to make is just cause you go to a yoga class doesn't make you, doesn't give you a pass to be a total asshole to people. You know what I mean? No, there's plenty of people it's going like, to yoga <laughs> class who are, who are, who are assholes. Like, yeah. what does that have to do with anything? There's a lot of people who feel really enlightened, but aren't doing anything impacting the real world. You know, I'm, I'm glad you can do whatever pose and that you meditate and drank some tea. Hooray for you, you know, <laughs> but what's that doing for the collective good? Do you really believe in those ideas? Are you really doing something to, I hate yoga because I'm not someone who can stay still yeah, and move totally. around, but I'm like a peaceful person. And in terms of like, you know, being aware of yourself and of trying to connect in a deeper way with, with nature, those things, that's, that's fascinating to me. I don't think that anyone has the exclusive rights to any of that. And, um, that's the punk thing though, right? It's, it's what's anyone, who's anyone else to tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing. So you have, um, a, uh, a DJ show coming. I do. Uh, Berlin on the 2nd and A at 11 p.m. on Thursday the 28th. And it's, you know, kind of anything goes rock and roll party. There'll be Garage and Psychobilly and, you know, punk and post-punk and Motown records. And we'll have a, we have a really cool kind of punkish drag queen called Bella Noche, who's going to be doing a couple performances through the night. And the idea is that is to, you know, bring different people together who love underground music and just hang out and for everybody to feel welcome and it's free oh. you know which is really important to yeah. me too to create these free spaces where we can kind of you know share stuff with each other and play records and i love yeah i always kind of try to look at dj sets like the olympics of like how many things within you know the underground framework can i play that bring people together that represent different aspects of people and you know, I got high hopes, so we're hoping to take it monthly. Awesome. So. Yeah, that's cool, man, doing a monthly, a monthly gig like that. Um, yeah, I've always been curious about, uh, you know, DJing and stuff. And, and um, like, do you start out with sort of like a, a roadmap of what songs you're going to play? Or is everything, you know, planned out from the beginning? Or do you do it on yeah. the fly? Or what's the I story? think a lot about the night and kind of the, the location. Um, one thing is if it's a place that's more calm and you can kind of go on your own trip, then I'll really plan it out. But if it's meant for people to dance or a more lively thing, I, I try to bring a wide range of things so that I could read the room 
and see what people are reacting to. So, you know, at the moment, as the crowd is like older or younger or, you know, dominated by people and I really kind of just come up with this concept. Like I told you, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not going to play modern records or, you know, country music really, or these things. It's, it's going to be underground music, you know, goth and punk and post-punk and all that, but that's big umbrella terms. So bring stuff yeah. from different generations and different scenes and that. And, and it, what's really fun to me is to draw the connections, you know, to try yeah. and, and segue between all these things as seamlessly as possible, but be like, oh, you know, I played six really different type of music in two hours. That's awesome. Cause I, I've been doing this uh, thing for Gimme Radio recently. It's like a, essentially a, a DJ set, really. It's about an hour of music and, you know, um, it's fun, man. And, and I try to build these narratives with like the songs where I kind of like, you know, come up with a theme maybe and see, and I'll start with one song and then like, all right, where do I go from here and connect it? Like I'll, there'll be like some connection, even if it's not an obvious thing, it might be just like an emotion or something. Or this is like, you know, like I'll take like a Fields of the Nephilim song, like maybe from like the Zune record or something. And then I'll put that next to like, you know, like a ministry track or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then from ministry, I might go to like God flesh from God flesh. I might go to like napalm death and from, you know, stuff like that. You yeah. Know what I mean? yeah and, and it's fun because you know, as much as everyone has access to the history of music now, there's really nothing that's curatorial. Yeah. And, and when you've had you know, luck like me and you have to experience a lot of things in person and be around scenes for a, a really long time and taking part in them, contributing to them, you bring authenticity. A Spotify playlist is never going to bring that. You're going to draw those connections and dig up those things that an algorithm will never do. True. That's and, true. Um, I, and, I, and also, I think that it's a really generous thing that you, it's underground culture no one is from the outside is going to take care of it preserve it or see that it's um written down accurately so you know dj sets from someone like you is also an oral history of things that's true yeah so i always look at that too i'm like i'm conserving something it's really easy to take partake in this narrative of new york is over and everyone's rich and all those things and i get that i feel that way too i've been here a long time but for me, the only answer is to make your own things, create your own spaces, start your own parties, make your own songs. And if you feel like something was better back in the day, try to, you know, capture that energy now and in, in a way that makes sense for this moment and conserve it and keep it alive. Don't sit home complaining because I, I can't. I was driving myself crazy a few years ago with oh, nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I, need, I really need to get out there and start doing new things and, you know, preserving yeah. this because it's going to make me bitter. Actually, yeah, when, I, when I'm not doing something, then the, the demons and the dark thoughts, thoughts <laughs> start, start coming into my head. And then that, the cunty side of my personality comes out and I start complaining. And it's like, yeah, the only remedy to that is to actually go out and do something. Yeah. And support things too, support things, because yeah. when you see someone, you know, don't sit home watching Netflix. When you see someone's, you're like, oh, that looks cool. You have to make that effort and go out. It's, you know, our, our scenes are self-sustaining and, um, in, in, in any city, but certainly in New York, it's, it's threatened in Manhattan. There's not many rock and roll bars left. There's not many venues. So if you don't support what's around, you kind of don't have a right to complain. So once again, the time and place. Yes. So it's at Berlin at 11 p.m. on June 28th. That's next Thursday. And um, that's uh, second and A and down in the basement under 2A the bar. And it's you know, going to be a rock and roll good time. Good music for bad people. Hell yeah, man. And I, know, <laughs> I know a lot of you guys are in the tri-state area. So if you got nothing to do, 
you want to get into some trouble on a Thursday night, come on out. I'll be there. And um, once again, Alish, thanks a lot for spending time with us, man. Ah, thanks so much. It's you know, I I really appreciate the chance to have this conversation. So, and thank you for listening. Take care. No one's been actually been able to tell you exactly, okay, you have, you know, 2,000 subscribers on iTunes, but they can tell you how many times people will listen to it and for how long. Okay. And that sort of stuff. So there's like a weird, the, the data for reporting stuff to get potential sponsors and whatnot. So, yeah, so you don't have an idea of the subscribers you have on iTunes? No, but I can tell, I can tell, that, I know, you would think that'd be an easy metric to come by. Of course. But either I to either Apple doesn't want to give up that information or assholes. I, I don't know why they wouldn't want to be like, hey, you've got this many subscribers, but they'll tell you like how many people listen to it, you know, right. and how long they listen to it for. But who is actually subscribed on iTunes, it's still fairly But then again on the host, once again, people like can that can join like I, the, the host that I use is called Podbean, right? Mm-hmm. As a listener, you can open up an account with Podbean. And then you can search, you know, browse through all the different shows they have and subscribe internally on that platform. So I can go to Podbean and say, okay, how many subscribers through Podbean do I have? But I, I'll, I don't know how many through, you know, Stitcher or, right. many, you know what I mean? So right, 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 right. There's so many different outlets oh, or Google shit. Play or Spotify. Like just recently, I'm, I got added to Spotify. So it's like, 
And did yeah. you have to do something for that, or your distributor just started working with them? Like, <coughs> well, you had to submit your show to Spotify. Oh, okay. And then um, they they tell you whether or not they're going to take it. So, so I, mean, I don't know what wow. criteria they have, but you know. So I just like because I have noticed some ago. podcasts that aren't on it. That's why I was asking. Yeah. That surprises me when you look for it. You're like, what's up with that? Yeah, the Spotify. The thing. The thing about Spotify that's weird. And this is just the same old plantation mentality about major labels and everything. It's like, you know, when, when music and everything started going digital, right? Um, you know, and, and there's less physical product changing hands, the major labels decided, okay, we're going to, you know, open up an outlet for people to stream music. Spotify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they're partners, yeah. and of course they negotiated those deals and they negotiated them to favor the label. They, yeah, totally. They certainly didn't negotiate them in the artist. And the problem now that Spotify is public is that we're going to start selling those stocks and really reaping the profit of those deals. And you know, none of that is going to oh, get no. kicked down. Hell no. To the people, so you know, they're saying how they will, but you you know they won't. Yeah, you know, and it's like, you know, the the, the problem I have with it too, it's like, I mean, as you know from working in the business. It's, it's uh, the royalty rates that you negotiate on a contract. It's like, you're lucky if you get 12%, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, when I tried to explain this to my guys in the band in the band one time, and I was just like, you know, the royalty means this. It's like, say it's 12%, right? So 12 cents on every dollar earned goes to the band account, okay? Right. But if you spend like 20 grand on recording a record, that every dollar they make, only 12 cents goes to pay that back. Right. So that's why they can keep giving you money to make more records because you might never, or you'll it'll be years before you recoup all that. Oh yeah. So now in the digital world, you're getting screwed just the same way. Mm-hmm. It's the same old thing, except on downloads, and the rate is even lower than than what you would get on physical product. So it's like you know, yeah, it's it's oh, cool, yeah, but you're movie. you're getting. I mean, I I see our our reports. I mean, you know, we we on some some of our records we're making money, but it's like such a minuscule amount versus like merchandise and touring of and all course. this other stuff so it's like you know the, the artist is still getting screwed the major you know the labels are still reaping the you know the, the rewards and it's just uh everyone thought i guess that the digital revolution was going to like favor the artist somehow but it's not really yeah i mean it's weird because on the one hand it did put the means of production like more in your hands than ever making yeah. a professional quality product at a price that that's accessible to more people <coughs> mm-hmm. um but on the other hand, it's like, you know, what, what you just said, it's you kind of benefit because you're someone who can tour yeah. and who has merch to sell. But, you know, someone who made like a bedroom record, electronic record or something that maybe doesn't DJ, no. you know, no. is, doesn't have a recognizable face. You're not going to sell before those 12 inches, those vinyls, those things would sell. Those yeah. people have n- nothing like there's no avenue really for them to make money. I, I so had it's really it. narrowed the field for the what you know what I mean what you can do. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I know like. Um, Alicia's allergic to Luca. Oh. Yeah. And she always wants to be near him. <laughs> always. Okay. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Is it okay if she sits? Yeah. Yeah. I probably need that to be a little closer. Yep. Um, yeah, but one of the other things too, it's like, uh, one of the other clients I had that I worked with to produce their show that they were doing was they were, um, involved in the hip hop community and kids these days, they're just putting stuff right on YouTube. And at least in that realm, if you get, I mean, you need like 
massive amounts of views to make any money off of um, oh sure you know ad revenue but at least in that sense like there's that still keeps it like kind of diy even though you need like millions to make dollar one you yeah need such a huge amount of uh of views of your video but um but yeah i mean it's like it there's always a by the way whenever it comes to music oh of it's course always, you know it's always like okay well now you have all this agency in creating your own media but by the way there's this great platform but it'll still take in all the money <laughs> yeah no, and, and even though it's, it's also easier to go direct to consumer, everything's so saturated that it's harder than ever to stand out and to reach people and to, and to actually reach, you know, and, and to, to 